And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. It's easy to throw superlatives around, but Al Hunt is truly one of the great political journalists of our time. With half a century of experience, he is an institution in American politics, having covered it for almost 35 years at the Wall Street Journal, where he ran the Washington Bureau, and later at Bloomberg. I sat down with Al the other day as he prepares to leave Bloomberg to talk about American politics through his eyes, where we have been and where we're going. Al Hunt, it's always great to see you, especially in my hometown of Chicago. Thanks for thanks for coming by. Great to be here and great to see you, David. You have um, a, a half century almost of experience in in journalism and in politics and covering the government. So we have a ton of stuff to talk about, but I want to talk about you first and how you how you made that journey. Um, and you started in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's where I was born. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was born there because my mom was doing World War II, and my dad was in the South Pacific, and my mom lived in a little town called Orange, and Orange didn't have a hospital, so I was born in Charlottesville. He was uh, he was a physician, a, a doctor. Let's say a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, was he a medical doctor in the service? He was. He was a pediatrician, David. But interestingly, pediatricians were more value than you would think, because they they, they there was a, when when soldiers and sailors got wounded. There, there, there was a, the, the psychological effects were often like children when they were hurt. And so he, he, he played a major role as, as kind of a psychiatric consultant to, yeah. uh, in the South Pacific. My father-in-law, who was also a doctor, uh, was in the South Pacific in yeah. the Navy uh, for several years and talked about that yep. and the role, uh, the role that he and others had to play so you you did but you didn't grow up in, in I grew Virginia. up outside of Philadelphia when, when my dad came back at the end of 45 uh, we moved to the Philadelphia suburbs and and what did your mom work outside the home or? my mom mainly worked in that she was mainly a housewife she did a little bit of stuff at a you know volunteering at a dress shop but uh, she raised four kids yeah that's a job it is a job yeah um, you you went uh, to the Haverford school um, which um, has a very storied uh, history. Um, why did you go there? It would tell me about that. Well, my dad decided that that, that he wanted to send us to Haverford. Uh, it was a good school. It was an all boys school, and so the three boys went to uh, went to Haverford. And, and I guess he thought we'd get a better education there. I'm not sure that's right. Although we had an awfully good time, and we got a good education. And I had some wonderful classmates. I was talking earlier to some of your associates about the great Steve Sable, who was of NFL Films fame, who was a classmate. And I've stayed in touch with a number of them. So it was a really good experience. One of the later, uh, I think he was slightly after you, is uh, John Hickenlooper. Yeah, he was a little bit after me, but uh, he too was there, which he mentions in his book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you uh, you went to Wake Forest. Mm -hmm, I did. Uh, and uh, as the story goes, you were not, the most scholarly of people when you were at Wake Forest, or at least you enjoyed a good time. I think that understates the case, David. <laughs> I really do. I'm trying to, we're polite uh, here at yes, the Yes, well, I, I appreciate your politeness, but it, it greatly understates the case. Uh, but I did have a good time. And you had a little respite from college uh, that was, I guess, provoked by a party that 
was a little too vigorous? It was my northern sabbatical, and uh, <laughs> it was. We had a, we actually had a hotel party, a motel party, because we were playing North Carolina basketball. So we rented three rooms out and wanted to celebrate. And we had quite a nice celebration, and someone did something else. The college found out about it. And uh, even though it was not illegal what we did or against college rules, rather, it was it was this is going to be a shock. But the women students were not allowed to go back. This is circa 1963 to unchaperone parties. So when they had this investigation of what happened, uh, we lied to protect the women students. And there were several things. That was So this is really an example of chivalry, not Excess party. I thought it was my father. My <laughs> father didn't quite accept that explanation. But two things had happened. Uh, one was that uh, I learned later when I was covering part of Watergate that when you tell one lie, you can't correct it. Then every lie builds on because yeah, every we, lie, we may be seeing some of that today. Oh boy, do we ever see that yeah. today? But that was important. But the other lesson was, David, when I left, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. And my best friend's dad was the city editor of the Philadelphia Bulletin, and he said, "Why don't you come to work for the Bulletin as a copy boy?" I had no interest in journalism before that and in a matter of weeks i fell in love with journalism and went back to school six months later so it really did change my life the bullen was a very vigorous uh paper yeah. back then it was um what was the slogan Everyone everybody in philadelphia reads, reads the bulletin, bulletin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and a lot of people did they had a pretty big it was the largest evening newspaper in america so so tell me what uh what captured your interest about i mean i grew up in a newsroom as you yeah. know at the, at the tribune so i always geek out on this uh, when i have journalists on with me but you know when they i got after about three months as a copy boy because of keen uh diligence and being really smart and being a friend of the city editors i got promoted <laughs> to nightside reporter and you come in at six o'clock and we you're supposed to get off at two but there was a problem i couldn't type I'd never typed before, so there I am, and I'm mainly doing obituaries and traffic accidents, and I would usually stay till six or seven uh, in the morning just to get through the typing. But but by the end of the summer, before I was going back to Wake Forest, they gave me a couple assignments, and one of them was this black family moving into a white neighborhood, and there was a lot of violence. Uh, it was a working-class neighborhood. And I, I just was, I, I found the story so fascinating, and I found the reaction. I, mean, I had a story in the paper that I thought had a little bit of an effect, and I just fell in love with it. I thought, this is really what I want to do for a living, I think. And then I went back to Wake Forest, and if I can just continue the story a little bit, uh, I got a job as UPI Stringer in addition to writing for the college newspaper. And that November, James Reston came to Winston-Salem and Wake Forest. Legendary. Legendary. Washington Bureau he was Chief brought the there by Wallace Carroll, who was the publisher of the Winston-Salem paper, who had been his, his deputy. And I spent three days following um, uh, James Reston for the UPIs, uh, making some money, I hoped. And um, at the end of that, the last time he was there, he said to me, all right, young man, what are you going to do with your life? You've asked me a lot of questions. And I said, well, Mr. Reston, I'm really undecided between journalism and law. And he said, well, that's an easy choice. He said, I was having lunch last week with Dean Acheson. <laughs> Fortunately, David, I didn't say the Dean Acheson. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. And he said, uh, Acheson said that law is lucrative, but you spend most of your first 10 years with dusty law books and boring briefs. And he looked at me and said, but one thing, if you go in journalism, almost everyone you meet is interesting. Some good, some bad, but almost by definition, if you 
uh, make news, you're interesting. So if you want to have an interesting life, go into journalism. And then he said, you know, as a, at the end, he said, and like me, marry above yourself. And, and <laughs> I did both. Yeah, you, you, you did well there. <laughs> I uh, did. Judy Woodruff, your, your wife, yes. you, you uh, we'll get to her in a second. Yep. Um, we had a great conversation with her. I know uh, you did. She loved it. Yeah, yeah a few months My son ago. even, I mean, I think, I think she was elevated in the, uh, in the eyes of my son. <laughs> being on um, the files. But, and you left and you went, did you go right to the Wall Street I Journal? I did. My senior year, I couldn't quite decide. You know, I, I knew I wanted to go into journalism, and I applied to a whole bunch of newspapers, and even thought about the Winston-Salem Journal, which was a great farm club then for the New York Times. Tom Wicker, Marjorie Hunter, and Bosley Crudder mm-hmm. had been there. Um, and and at one point, uh, I was I was I'd been offered a job uh, by the uh, Chicago Daily News. And I had a good friend who was, was a, a great cla- paper, by the way. And I had a friend who was a, a, a good friend who was a classmate named Brian Piccolo, and oh he, had my. Been, he had been drafted by the he hadn't been drafted, yeah. he had been signed by the Bears. And we talked about coming out to Chicago together, but then I I applied. tragic story by the it way it was a tragic story he came he, here and, he, and and was. Uh, a great part of that team and died of cancer. And died at like age 28, I think, yeah. or 27. Uh, and uh, I still can't watch the movie Brian's song without yeah, crying. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I applied to the Wall Street Journal. Someone advised me, you know, just try it. I have no interest in, I had no interest at all in business news. And they flew me up to New York. And to my, I thought I had a fairly decent interview. I still stay in touch with the man who interviewed me, Warren Phillips, later became the CEO. And at the end of the interview, he said to me, have you ever taken an economics course? And I said, well, I've taken one. And then he said, what did you get? And David, I had that moment of truth. What do you do? I mean, do you what? And I finally, I finally, it seems to me it took an hour. It took about two seconds. I said, I got to see. And he said, well, thank you. And I thought, well, that's the end of the Wall Street Journal. And to my shock, they like C students. And uh, I got Or maybe it. they like someone who admitted to well, being that, that a C be. student. So yeah. anyway, I went, I, I left Winston-Salem and two weeks and later. But, but, but let me just interrupt for a second and say, and maybe this is just out of my own sense of defensiveness, but I think a lot of student journalists uh, probably had a few C's on their record because I, my experience was I wanted to just be out writing stories yeah, you know yeah. I wasn't me too. I, 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 I was a casual attendee in many of my classes which is ironic because I'm working at the University of Chicago yeah. now again but I just wanted to be a reporter and any chance I could get I was out there chasing a story I, I identify totally with that yeah uh, so you uh, so you, you I interrupted you 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 were you headed up to uh, New York right I headed, it was 1965, went to New York, and they gave me a beat of broadcasting in pulp and paper. I have no idea why it was broadcasting in pulp and paper. I wasn't terribly interested in pulp and paper, but the broadcasting was fun. And I would go interview, you know, the Bill Paley's and the Frank Stanton's of the world. Uh, I wasn't very good because I didn't know very much. Uh, David, my third day there, I mean, this is, this is a story I, I almost cringe when I t- tell a fellow named Jim Haggerty, who had been Eisenhower's yeah. press secretary, yeah, sure. was the vice president of ABC. And I'm sure somebody said to him, they got a young kid at the Wall Street Journal covering broadcasting, and he's a real fish. I mean, this is you, you're... And I, got a, I picked up the phone, and he said, Al, this is Jim Haggerty. 
And I thought it was one of my college buddies playing a prank on me and basically said, Louie, I don't have time for this. I hung up the phone. And about two minutes later, someone from ABC called back and said, you know, Mr. Haggerty called. I was just mortified. But it was, uh, he was a really nice man. I, I, I loved having lunch with him. And I, I, I really wasn't very well equipped to, 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 do, to cover quite an interesting beat. And after about not quite two years, I was tr- transferred to Boston. Uh, which became a wonderful two-year experience. Boston, uh, so Boston in the late 60s. Well, and I covered Kevin White's mayoral campaign, which was great fun. The the busing crisis had begun. I got Louise Day Hicks. Louise Day Hicks was running against Kevin. Who was an anti-busing activist there. She was, South Boston. Yeah, race was uh, just uh, all over the country, but Boston was ground zero in the north for... A lot of that. It really was. A judge had ordered um, South Boston to to bust, have some students bust in there and some students bust down. It was a huge country. But it's a fascinating town. I loved it. I made a lot of good friends up there and got to do stories. I was supposed to cover business, and I did a little bit of that, not very well, but but to be able to cover uh, stories about politics, the educational institutions were there. Uh, it was just great fun. But I told the journal from the day I, I started, I want to go to Washington. That's really what I want to do. And they called me in 69 and said, um, there's an opening. I said, great, great, what is it? And they said, uh, as, as a treasury reporter. I mean, I, I sort of blanched because I didn't know very much about the treasury. I came down to Washington from Boston with Paul Samuelson's basic text on my lap, supply, demand, what does it mean to cover the treasury for the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, that's uh, the thing about journalism is that um, – you learn a lot, and the, it's not so much what you know; it's what you it is whether you know what to ask. Yeah, uh, is is what I discovered. But you got thrown into the deep end several times here. Yeah, I did, but it was it was. I I, I would not want to be writing about the treasury a lot now, but it was a great experience because I learned things I never would have learned. Uh, one of the people who chastised me for one of my early mistakes was the Undersecretary of the Treasury, a man named Paul Volcker. Oh, yes. Who said to me, uh, you know, you screwed up this refunding. Come up to my office every couple of weeks, and I'll try to uh, tutor you in this stuff. But You damn, should it's take be hard. solace in the fact that you're not the only person who he's chastised <laughs> in his life. He's uh, a little fame, fame, infamous for that. Well, he and he did, and... Um, about 14 years later, I was giving a speech at the Brookings uh, annual dinner, and Volcker was the Fed chairman, and I thought I'd a light line to start with, and I told the story, and I said I learned from the best, and Paul came up afterwards and said, I've read your stuff. Please don't tell that story again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, uh, so you started at the Treasury. When did you make the move into politics? Well, it was interesting because Nixon— instituted wage and price controls in the summer of 71. I mean, people don't... People should wrap their arms around this. Here's a Republican president. Oh, oh. so much bigger than anything. Uh, I mean, bigger wage and price controls in a way than we had during the war. Everything was under... And I got a chance to cover that for six months. That was really fun because that was about politics. That really was about power politics. And actually, the people who ran the Cost of Living Council were someone named Don Rumsfeld with an assistant named Dick Cheney. Rumsfeld, you'd look at his resumes or whenever he he went to defense, he he just omitted that. No one knew that he ran wage and price control. That was fun. And after that, I went to cover the Hill uh, in early 72, January 72. And that was politics. Yeah, well, I'll say... 
that was also an eventful time. How long were you on the Hill? Well, I was on it from 72 through almost the end of 83, but every presidential year, 76 and 80 at least, I would take off from the Hill and just cover the presidential. But part of that span was Watergate. It was, and I didn't cover Watergate as the story per se, the investigative story, but I covered it from the Hill. And uh, I, I, I was there the, the night the uh, Committee on Judiciary voted the first um, uh, bill of impeachment, which is one of the most extraordinary nights in my life. I mean, to go and watch that committee, which really did an incredibly careful job. I mean, they, they deserve enormous credit. I hope that this issue... Peter Rodino was the chairman Peter of that Rodino committee uh, the, from New Jersey. From, and, uh, from, yes, and he handled it with such distinction. He was considered sort of a political hack. Right. He just rose to the occasion, and there were Republicans like Bill Cohen uh, and, and Larry Hogan's father uh, who were there, and they were... Larry Southern, Hogan, now the governor of Maryland. Now the governor of Maryland, and Southern Democrats like Flowers of Alabama and Maine and Man of South and they just did it. I mean, they really took it seriously. And as did the Nixon defenders. There was a fellow named Charles Wiggins from California, yeah. and he made those impeachment advocates prove their case. And he challenged them day after day. It was really a, a, an incredible process. And the night, that, that August, that July night when they voted the first you know, bill of impeachment, I, it was about 7.30, quarter of 8 at night, and I walked back to the Capitol. And, and you just think of what's happened. The first time since Andrew Johnson, someone has, has, has uh, a committee has voted impeachment, and there in the Capitol, the American flag is flying. There's a bunch of tourists on the steps on a Saturday night. And it just, I mean, it sounds corny, but it made you really appreciate what a great country we have. So I think it, it, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you're thinking now, having gone through that experience and having been a witness to right. it. Um, and we should add that we, uh, there were heroic players on the Senate side uh, right. as well as uh, Sam Irvin and Howard Baker uh, and, uh, uh, and a young Fred Thompson, who was the counsel, uh, who uh, were worked in a bipartisan way and I think in a very honorable way to deal with what was a national crisis. Fast forward to what you see today and tell me what parallels you see. I mean, part of it, part, and, and whether the institution is, is uh, up to the institution of Congress dealing with what may now be on their plate. I, I think that's very worrisome. Uh, because I think it, it almost certainly will be on their plate. And uh, whether they learn the lessons, whether Gerald Nadler can be a Peter Rodino. I mean, I, 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 I blanched a little bit when Nadler went out the other day and said, surely he's committed impeachable offenses. Right. Well, I mean, I might think that, and you might think that, or someone else, but the chairman of the Judiciary Committee ought to just you know, hold everything until Bob Mueller has, has, has finished. So that worries me. And the second thing that worries me is it was not just the Republicans you mentioned. It was Barry Goldwater. Yes. Uh, there were others. There were people. It I was mean, Barry Goldwater who, who walked down Pennsylvania right. Avenue or rode down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House to tell the president that he was going to face uh, a, a, hostile, a hostile Senate and that he needed to resign. Yeah, it was. And I followed for about a year and a half a marvelous Republican congressman from upstate New York named Barbara Conable. Most people have never heard of him. One of the most admirable people I've ever known in politics. 
And he was a guy who was just, he would only take $50 contributions. He was one of the most honest people I've ever known. And I could follow that sequence where he started off saying, look, they did some bad things, but I can't believe Dixon was involved in it. To, oh, my God, it was worse than I thought. But impeachment, that just goes too far. To worried about not, less his party and more the institution, the wider institutions, and then finally concluding that we had no alternative. I'm not sure there's a Barbara Conable there today. I'm not sure there's a Barry Goldwater uh, there today. You know, I look at people like Rob Portman and Lamar Alexander, and I'm not looking for them to say, you know, go get him right now, but they seem to be more interested in in, in either hiding or, or, or protecting. So that worries me. Both those worry me. I think a lot about Nixon and Trump, and there are some really fundamental differences. I think Nixon deserved his fate. I think the, 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 the bill that was brought against him was, was totally persuasive, and he deserved to be driven from offices. But two, the two profound differences. One is that Nixon had some smart people around him and you know did some good things and was smart and, and knew about policy. But the second thing that I think really relates to it, Nixon had some respect for institutions. He had some respect for the rule of law. Sometimes he said, you know, screw it. I'm going to disobey it. Trump has no respect for institutions. He has no respect for the rule of law. And when Nixon's, when Barry Goldwater went down to the White House and others told him it's time to go, he left. Trump won't go quietly into the night. And I think that if we come to that that point, uh, I think that's scary. You wonder, Al, would Nixon have been impeached had there been social media, had there been Fox News, had he the tools that uh, that are now available to the Trump White House in trying to fight off all of this? I, I think that's a, a an interesting question and, and, and a bothersome one, too. Now, it, it wasn't that they got off scot-free back then. Bill Cohen, who was then a junior member, a freshman, actually, on the House Judiciary Committee, later became senator and from Maine, secretary. Yeah. Uh, he had death threats in Maine. Uh, I mean, at one point he needed security. So it wasn't totally different. But clearly, with social media and with a base that is so, so driven and so... They believe the fake news stories, and I think a lot of Republicans look at what happened to to Mark Sanford in South Carolina, one of the most conservative members of the House, got beaten because he didn't kowtow to Trump style, and Jeff Flake out in Arizona, and they're scared. Uh, They're into survival, and I I can't imagine Barry Goldwater being scared. He may have been some things, but scared he never was, and uh, and so I, I, I think it's quite different. The Nixon White House did try, and it was the Washington Post was particularly aggressive. Woodward right. and Bernstein, they tried very hard to discredit the reporting, um, but there wasn't. They didn't have those weapons, and now you see this great polarity where uh, Republicans generally are dismissive of these charges. Democrats, uh, you know thoroughly believing in them and, you know, independence to the president's dismay probably trending more in the negative. But this has become so polarized in a way that makes your recounting of the role that people played back in that day seem kind of quaint and sepia colored. Yeah, it does. And it also underscores, though, to the extent there's any chance 
for this ending successfully, however one defines that, it has to be a careful and deliberative mm -hmm. process. It can't be people popping off uh, on either side. I mean, some are going to, uh, particularly on the Republican side. But Democrats have to be very, very careful about this. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I'm one of the things that just stuns me, I can't think of anyone who should command more respect to head a special counsel investigation than Robert Mueller. I mean, he was a Republican. He was appointed by Republicans. He served under Republicans. He served under Democrats. I don't know anyone who knows Bob Mueller who doesn't say he's a man of 100% plus integrity. He is smart, tough. He's put together a really quite a crack staff. I have a friend whose son works there, and um, he told me that they usually wear white shirts. And, and his son, who's, I guess, a bachelor, got up one morning at 5 o'clock, and he didn't have a clean white shirt. And he had this great trauma. Am I half hour late, and do I wash my shirt, or do I wear a blue shirt to work? You don't have to wear a blue shirt, but that's kind of the respect they have for Mueller. Yeah, someone who, told, someone who and worked. And so I said to the friend, I said, well, what did he do? And he said, I don't know, he won't tell me. <laughs> that office, I've never seen an office yeah. that leaks less. Yes, you've been around that town a long time. Yeah. It is a phenomenal thing. It is. Uh, yeah, someone told me that they, uh, their brother worked for uh, Mueller when he was U.S. attorney, and he'd have meetings at 6 in the morning, and he'd start each meeting off by saying, what have you done for your country today? Yeah. At six in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a he's a serious guy. Princeton graduate went in the Marine Corps. I mean, he's a real patriot and a real serious guy. And boy, they have gone in the efforts to discredit him, including by some people. I mean, you, you expect they're the Rush Limbaugh's. You know, I don't I don't expect some of the cheap shots that a Lindsey Graham has taken. I don't expect some of the others. Uh, Why do you think he is? Lindsey? Mm-hmm. Because he got a 34% favorability among Republicans about a year ago in a poll. Mm -hmm. I think it's that simple, and he's up in 2020. Yeah. I, uh, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. You covered the campaign of 1976. Was that your first? I, I covered 72, but really almost on the periphery. I mean, a little bit more than that, but, but, but uh, I wasn't a major reporter for the Wall Street Journal then, but in 76 I did... I did cover it, which was time. the post uh, the post Watergate yeah. election, and the guy who emerged was Jimmy Carter. Well, Jimmy Carter came out of nowhere, uh, and uh, no one took him seriously until one-term governor from Georgia. One-term governor from Georgia, uh, you know, a peanut farmer had been in the Navy, uh, and uh, he went to Iowa. And th 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 David, you, this may sound familiar to you. He yeah. decided that he could retail Iowa better than anyone, right? And he, and he did. Well, he did something, but I, you know, he did something more because the Iowa caucuses, uh, when by the time Barack Obama ran for president, were the established kind of funnel through which one had to pass to become a credible presidential candidate. Right. Jimmy Carter kind of invented the Iowa caucuses as a major. Uh, event in, he established uh, that predicate yeah, in '76, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he did it. He did it brilliantly, and um, and then he went on to win the nomination. He beat George Wallace in Florida. George Wallace, a segregationist who had bedeviled the Democratic Party uh, for several cycles, uh, and then went and had a remarkably close election against Gerald yeah. Ford, who had been challenged by Ronald Reagan. And Ford was the accidental president, of course, succeeding. Uh, Nixon and, and pardon uh, Nixon, which and, dogged and, him. And you know, it was really one of the best acts that any president has ever done. And at the time, it was just—it seemed like it was going to kill his whole his whole political career. And I think he did it out of the out of the best of purposes, and it was the right call. I didn't think so at the time, David. Yeah, I was a young reporter, and I thought it's outrageous. I was, you know, that that this guy is getting away scot free. Well, one of the uh, one of the early decisions that 
President Obama made that probably still is controversial uh, among some was not to go back and prosecute anyone in the Bush administration right. for some of the excesses around uh, around torture and some of these other issues. Uh, and um, And his reasoning was, I think, somewhat similar, which is it would be bad for the country to revisit that history, mm-hmm. to reopen those wounds. Uh, it was it'd be better to learn and correct uh, them, but it's it, it wasn't popular. There was a there was a a, a, a taste for, um, uh, you know, for for rough justice there. And those people who thought that should be asked today what they would think of Donald Trump going back and trying to prosecute uh, people because you're absolutely right. Uh, other than extreme, extraordinary circumstances, we don't engage in, uh, um, you know, that kind of that kind of political... And the forfeiture of office was uh, in and of itself an extraordinary, yeah. an extraordinary punishment. Uh, so in a sense, that question had been answered. Um, but, um, yeah, Ford was uh, 30 points behind at what point in that race and ended up losing by a point to Jimmy Carter. He lost by a point, and he made a huge blunder in a debate about two weeks earlier in which he accidentally freed Eastern Europe from the communist Europe. Yeah. If he hadn't have made that mistake, I, I think he, he may well have won that election. He ran a great campaign that fall. He did. Uh, that campaign also had one other noteworthy uh, uh, aspect to it in that you met your future wife, at a softball game in Plains, Georgia, is that right? I think that was the most momentous event of 1976. <laughs> others think the others think the election of Carter or whatever. I I, I think that was really the big one. Yeah, and, I was instantly smitten, David. She wasn't, but you know we worked on it. Yeah, uh, and she was covering obviously uh, that event, which for a woman in that time was pretty unusual. She got a job with an Atlanta television station because the woman reporter uh, became pregnant. So therefore, they could have one woman reporter, not two. And she became the woman reporter, and they assigned her to cover the state house uh, when this uh, new governor, Jimmy Carter, took over. So it was pretty fortuitous uh, yeah. for her career. Um, in 1980, Carter had a difficult presidency. Uh, 1980, Ted Kennedy uh, comes along. Uh, that was a... That was a pretty momentous, uh, titanic kind of struggle. Uh, talk a little bit about that. And also, you, you mentioned Reagan challenging Ford. What does it mean to a president when they have a challenge within their own party? Because there are people currently thinking about challenging Donald Trump in a Republican primary. If it's a serious challenge, it probably means they're not going to win in the fall. Uh, I mean, almost without exception. Uh, although Ford, as you noted, uh, did come close. Y- you know, I knew I knew Senator Kennedy, you know, re- really well for a really long time. I admired him immensely. He was, I think, one of the probably four or five greatest senators in the history of the republic. But he had a legislative mindset. He really did. And you could see it when he ran for president. He ran a terrible campaign. Uh, and I I don't know. I can argue it both ways as to whether he would have been a good president or not. But that wasn't his. I think there. Do you think he wanted to be president? I think it was. I think he was the he was the heir. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was cast upon him. I I I don't think he was driven by it. But I think he felt he had an obligation to his brothers, and and I think that was reflective uh, in it too. Uh, But he uh, he would just. 
he, he would jumble sentences and, you know, couldn't articulate. That didn't matter when you were in the Senate. I mean, nobody worked better. And yeah. there, in, in politics, I think, David, they're indoor and they're outdoor politicians. <laughs> Teddy was as good an indoor politician yeah. as you'd see in the Senate. Yeah. And not very good outdoors. I made the same point about Nancy Pelosi. I agree with you, yeah. You know, who I think is a masterful legislative strategist and tactician, not great uh as an outward facing spokesperson. Yeah. And say the same thing about Bob Dole. Yeah. Yeah. And Harry Reid, yep. for that matter. Yep. Um so uh, uh and then Reagan, who ultimately was the beneficiary of that. Talk about Ronald Reagan as a political figure. I think Reagan was um I think Democrats and liberals uh failed to appreciate some of the strengths that Reagan brought. They thought he was just this, you know, grade B Hollywood actor who, uh, you know, would read lines. And he was more than that. I, 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 he was not my, you know, I'm not going to say that I, uh, I voted for him because I didn't, David. But uh, I think he was a, um, he had a sense, he, he, he was very secure. And I think that's very important for a politician. Yeah. Uh, he was able to surround himself with some good people. It was a mixture. He was a guy who chose the campaign manager of his opponent to Jim be his Baker. chief of staff. Yeah. Now, that, that takes a certain security. And I think, uh, I think Democrats uh, suffered because they underestimated Reagan. Yeah. Um, his, um, you know, I see echoes of that today. I mean, Donald Trump is not Ronald Reagan he he sometimes likes to he's on occasion compared himself that way um but people who were disdainful of reagan i think also misread how voters who supported reagan read their disdain yeah and i do think that there is this element in washington in new york on the coasts among the elites um that is that is read by a lot of voters in the middle of the country as being dismissive, not just of the candidate they supported, but of them. I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, um, I, I think um, that I want to make one more point about Reagan and then address it more. What, what Reagan did do and what I think I didn't like most of his policies, uh, but what Reagan did do in 1980, we really were in a crisis of confidence. Lloyd Cutler wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs. We ought to turn to a parliamentary system that you can't govern. Jimmy Carter's famous Malay speech, which he didn't say Malay, right. but that that famous speech. Uh, and what Reagan proved was you could govern again. I mean, he he knew what he wanted. Uh, he had a sense of what his priorities were. He had some good people around him, and that was terribly important. Yeah. Uh, and I think in many he was ways, a good deal maker. Baker was a good deal. They maker. were great deal makers. He and Tip O'Neill, uh, contrary to the you know conventional wisdom, they really weren't crazy about each other, but they could deal with each other, and they did on some big, big stuff. And uh, Reagan was always more flexible than his critics thought. I mean, he would go and remember he uh, he he went and he uh, enacted a tax cut one time in California. He said, "My feet are locked in concrete on this." And when we backed down six months later, he said, "You know what you've just heard is the cracking of that cement." <laughs> uh, but that was Reagan, yeah, yeah. and and he was not the right wing ideologue he was sometimes uh, uh, portrayed. He, he was rhetorically, but not 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 as a uh, as a as a governmental practitioner. Trump, I think, is different than Reagan in a lot of ways, but I think your point about, about all right, this is just a corrupt clod and, uh, you know, he's going to be easy to defeat next time, 16 was accidental, that that would be a mistake. Yeah. What about the, the, the president we just lost, George H.W. Bush? 
I, you know, history can be kinder to people, as it, as it certainly was the case with Truman. And I think that's the case with Bush, too. I didn't think Bush was a terribly good president in 1992. And I now think that he may be one of the best first one-term presidents ever, maybe he and James J. Polk. You never become a great president without a second term. I mean, that's just, I mean, Washington, Lincoln had a second term. Yeah. I mean, it just was cut short. Uh, that re-election is a you know, reaffirmation. You can do some things in foreign policy that you maybe can't do in the first term. So, so Bush was denied that. But you look at the end of the, the way he and Baker ended the Cold War. You look at the first Gulf War. Uh, you know, they really did a lot. And even domestically, I think that budget uh, act where, he, where he, he reneged on his no, no, no taxes, no new taxes, and, and, and got a spending cut, that ushered the way that would, was the beginning of the boom of the 90s. Yeah. The Americans for Disabilities Act, David, something that you and I care yeah, a lot we'll about, talk about that was, was enacted under George Bush, and he did it with great Tom Harkin will say he never wavered. Yeah. You know, um, what's striking to me is that this sort of, the, the, uh, the difference between the tenor of his campaign in, in 1988 yeah. And the way that he governed, and he obviously made a separation in his he mind compartmentalized, right? that this is what you need to do to win, and once you are in office, you can govern. But that was maybe the most brutal and effective negative campaign of my lifetime, yeah. the Bush campaign against Mike Dukakis, Willie Horton. And, and, of course, part of that was the No New Taxes Pledge because he needed to do that right. to solidify uh, his his it, base. It was racist. Uh, it was it was disingenuous, and he knew it. And I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. Uh, we we had a, a what we called a political hack writers group, and we'd have dinners from time to time. And we had a dinner January nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine, the night before Bush became president. And he knew some of those reporters, Bob Healy, the Boston Globe. Mm -hmm. So we invited the Bushes. We didn't think there's any way they'd come the night before he's going to be sworn. And they called and said, Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll come. Can't stay for dinner. And they came for about an hour, and they were just charming. I mean, he was you know, a remarkably charming man. And he told me that night, he said, I, I said, boy, you must be excited. You know, can you imagine, you know, your dad would be so thrilled? He said, I am, but this deficit really worries me. This deficit, he knew that he had made a mistake or he'd made a political calculation. Yeah. Uh, and it took him a couple of years, though, to... Um, to well, and the, and, and the fact is, as you kind of suggested, the, the, the decision to break that pledge was the beginning of the end uh, for Bush. Uh, that no new taxes pledge was in, in your, your old colleague, Pat Buchanan, right. was uh, ran in, in 92. And that, apropos of the thing you said earlier, was, you know, just soften the ground under Bush. It did. And uh, I don't believe, Jim Baker claims that if it weren't for Ross Perot, that Bush would have won that election. I don't believe that. I think there were other factors uh, uh, at work there, which uh, which which made it a, a, a tough slog for him. But there's no question that the tax issue really hurt him so much among the base. There was not a very good turnout among some in some heavily Republican areas, and and it cost him. Talk about Bill Clinton as a uh, as a politician, as a person. I just did a podcast with a television podcast on CNN with Rahm Emanuel, who I know you've you, you were here to see. He um, and he said Bill Clinton was the greatest politician that he's ever seen. He was certainly up there. Uh, he, he was a great politician. Um, he, um, he, he, he could sense things. Sometimes it was almost in a 
you know, he would almost be a caricature of himself. Remember on the first Gulf War uh, where he said something to the effect that, you know, I, I, I would have voted for it, but I opposed yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. And, uh, you know, he could, he could somehow do that without it looking as disingenuous as it was. But he had a great feel uh, when he dealt with uh, Rom. we'll talk about this at great length, when he talked about gun control and they got some big stuff enacted, the Brady right. Bill, the assault weapons ban. It wasn't, you know, gun control, Hunter, we're going to take your, your uh, guns away. It was crime control. We're going to go, mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're not going to let those bad people get a hold of this stuff. Um, and and he could he could charm, but he turned Newt Gingrich inside out. I mean, they had this after the '94 election when Republicans won, uh, you know, their huge uh, majority uh, in the House. Uh, Gingrich looked like he was uh, he was supreme, and they began negotiations, and Clinton just turned him inside out, and uh, he was very good at that. His, his failure, of course, were some personal failures, and he didn't have as much discipline as a president ideally should have. Mm-hmm. He, he was for a brilliant, wide-ranging mind, could talk about anything, but there wasn't, there wasn't quite a, there wasn't as much, I don't think as much discipline as there'd been in some other very good presidents. Well, yeah, I think, uh, Rom talked about that. I asked about the difference between Obama and yeah. Clinton, and he, he, uh, he talked about that. I, I, we also talked about the, uh, the fact that he was invisible on the campaign trail in 2018, you know, which must have, have, have oh. really hurt him. He's not wanted anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. really. I mean, there may be a few places. But he is an albatross now for Democrats. No one mentions him. Uh, and it's interesting because it wasn't the case. You remember how much he, he, he helped Obama. In 2012. You know, was, in 2012, I went to a rally in Virginia about a week beforehand, and it was just fantastic. No, he was the most valuable player in that campaign. Right. But, you know, Something there was happened. a reckoning. Yeah. There was a reckoning around this Me Too yep. Issue, and I think there are a lot of people who said, you know what, we we were wrong in in not confronting this a, at the time, and 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 he handled it poorly. He really has handled it poorly. I it's always a mistake to say that Bill Clinton can't recover. He has recovered a lot of times, including in his presidential campaigns and other times. Right. When he left office in two thousand one. In January, he was sky high in the polls, uh, and then he pardoned Mark Rich, and it got so bad that he had friends trying to get him on corporate boards, and he couldn't get on a corporate board. But then he came back, uh, and then he had another setback, and then he came back. I think this one is more permanent. What about Hillary as a politician? Uh, Obviously, I was involved in a campaign in 2008 when Obama won the nomination, um, and we all saw the campaign 2016. You covered that campaign, or you wrote about that campaign. Uh, talk about her as a politician. She's not very good. Uh, I mean, she's a very smart woman. Uh, she's pretty good at Secretary of State, but she doesn't. You know, she could she could talk about seven point programs as effectively as anyone that I've seen, because she knew them. I mean, if she wanted to put out a tax bill, she could tell you exactly what was in it and why it was good for working class people. But it was a seven point program. Uh, And she didn't have that knack that that, yeah. that, that Bill Clinton had. And I think that Barack Obama had and that Ronald Reagan had to to to. It's not just identifying with people, but it's saying things that people can understand. And um, she didn't have that. She also... Yeah, a lot. She was all trees and no forests. Exactly. Yeah. And she sometimes didn't pick the best people uh, when it came to politics. 
Um, and I, I, I think it was a look. A lot of bad things happened in 2016. I think the Russians, you know, they clearly interfered with the election. Kathleen Hall Jamison at the University of Pennsylvania makes a case that it affected the outcome. That's certainly a case you can make. I think some of the coverage, if you look at the coverage, even of great places in October of 2016, there was a lot more coverage of Hillary's emails than of Trump's Russian connections. So she, she, she was dealt a bad hand. But if media, she, did the media fail there? Yeah, I do. I think so. No question of that. I think uh, in some of the really good media. And I think some of it was, well, it's, we don't have it hard enough. Besides, he's not going to win. Right. I mean, your there old boss, a, your old boss sort of had that feeling, too, with some of this stuff. Right. I mean, I think the presumption that he that she was going to win played very heavily in a lot of decisions yeah, that too. a lot of people made. Yeah. And, um, and, and we're, including Comey, I think. Yes. Oh, I don't think there's any question of that. I think I, Comey also was a little bit afraid of how much the House Republicans would savage him if they could, and the, everything. But, yes, but I think his assumption was she would win. Right. It would become to light that they had reopened the investigation, and he would be, uh, and he would be savaged for. Yeah. It. He 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 too miscalculated. Yeah. Uh, but no, I I, I think um, look. I think the campaign also wasn't terribly well run. I mean, when you take Wisconsin and Michigan for granted, they didn't take Pennsylvania for granted. They just, they lost. But, um, you know, there were mistakes made. And um, and I think, as I say, she was a good, you know, pretty good senator, pretty good secretary of state, but not a very good political candidate. How will Obama be remembered? You're going to think I'm pandering to you, aren't you? Because I think he, I think he and Reagan are the two most consequential presidents. Um, you, you know, since uh, you know, maybe since World War II. I mean, Eisenhower is getting the arc of history is helping Eisenhower a little bit. Uh, but I, I think they really were, really are consequential presidents. Uh, and I think because they did big things, uh, you know, whether it was coming back from the awful. Uh, near depression we had in early 2009, uh, whether it was, I think the Affordable Health Care Act is going to survive. Mm-hmm. They're trying to gut it, but it's, in ter- it's got flaws, but it's terribly important. Um, you know, even in, and I think some foreign policy, there were some foreign policy successes. He did get bin Laden. That's not insignificant. Uh, and even, you know, that I think is Part of the reason I think he's going to have a, a really good legacy, and also who he was. I mean, that story is just an extraordinary story. Yeah, I've told you. I think I've told you this story. Please, I hope Rom doesn't listen to this. I came out in 2002 to do a piece on Rahm Emanuel running for Congress because I thought he could really be a big player. And came and he had a tough primary. You'll remember mm-hmm. that year. And I had I dinner. Was doing his race. I had dinner with my, a dear friend, a man who married us, Abner J. Mikva. Yes. And Ab Mikva said to me, "Well, you know, it's great you're doing the, you know, the Emmanuel thing, but he said there's a much more important story you ought to be doing." I said, "What's that?" He said, "There's a state senator out here who I think could be president someday." And I said, "Well, well who, who is that, Abner?" And he said, "His name is Barack Obama." And I walked away. I did the Rom story, and I walked away thinking, "Old oh, dreamy Ab, you know, some some, some African American state senator is going to be president someday." Uh, but that story is a remarkable story. Yeah. And so I think you put well, and it's the- not just a story about him, but the country. Yep. You know, um, I, I often talk about this. I, there was a woman who took care of me when I was a kid. My mother was at work, named Jessie Berry, and she took me out to see JFK. Uh, she's an African-American woman from South Carolina, uh, and she took me out to see JFK when he came to New York City in 1960. I was five years old. That sort of fired my whole interest in all of this, but I think a lot about what, you know, she she came from a South where you could be killed for trying to vote, yeah. and uh, the, the notion that I 
would work for the first African-American president would be inconceivable. Maybe because she knew me, but also yeah. because she, she, knew, the, she knew the country. Um, David, you and I were together uh, the night before Obama was elected. Manassas, Virginia. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, where the first Battle of Bull Run was fought. Yes. Where the North, where the Union Army suffered a devastating defeat. It, 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 it almost ended Lincoln. I yes. mean, it was that bad. Yes. And here you are at Manassas, Virginia, and Obama comes in, and his mom, I think. His grandmother, his grandmother died. rather, yeah. had died that yeah. day. He's hoarse. It's a long campaign. And he gets up there, and he's not very good to begin with. And suddenly, I, it's like he looked down, and there were like 65 or 70,000 yeah. people. It was, I mean, yeah. it was an incredible scene. And he just got stronger and stronger. Yeah. And I, I, I and, and there was a, I don't know if you remember, there was an African-American gentleman standing next to us who said that um, this is the most exciting sighted he has been since the Kennedy yeah. campaign. And he said, I was at the Kennedy inaugural. And I said, where are you? He said, yeah, I was a waiter. Yeah. Uh, but but it, was, uh, it was remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And uh, where are we today with this president? I think, <laughs> I, th- I'm, I shouldn't laugh. I think he's certainly the worst president of my lifetime. I think he's the worst president, not because I disagree with his policies, though I disagree with many. But I think there is a, um, a carelessness, a recklessness, um, a meanness, uh, and I think a corruption. And I think that swamp is bigger than just 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's the EPA. It's the Commerce Department. Uh, it's pervasive. Uh, and uh, I think he's someone who he doesn't know any history, doesn't care about history, uh, and he doesn't surround himself with very good people. If you take Jim Mattis out, uh, I don't think there's a single other high-level person that would serve in a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio or a John Kasich uh, administration. He really has brought in... uh, And what do you anticipate for the next two years? Now we have a a Democratic House... Plainly, they are going to be looking not just at him, but these agencies, the ones that you mentioned. I, and they ought to. I mean, oversight is terribly important, but they ought to do it carefully, selectively. Uh, they don't, you, you, we, we don't want to be talking in, in April, and all the Democrats have done is investigate and investigate and done you know, their, uh, their version of what Trey Gowdy and uh, uh, you know, Jim Jordan and the others did. They, want to, they should hold them accountable, but they have to do other things, too. I think, this is where you and I totally agree, the person that's best able to walk that line and lead them in walking that line is Nancy Pelosi, and it would be really a, almost a crime if she's not uh, elected. It seems that, well, you know, in a sense, the way she's putting this thing together is a reflection of why she should be there exactly. at this moment, because it involves, uh, it involves dealing with a, a diverse um, caucus with different political needs, and she's going one by one by one and, uh, and, and, and putting that coalition together, which is what she's done on major pieces and has of legislation. great sensitivity, great understanding, great skill. Rom told me one time that she's the only person that ever intimidated him. Uh, and uh, if you can intimidate Rom, I mean, that, that yeah, that's something. Yeah, that's good. And, and a useful thing, too. <laughs> it is. Um, and just looking ahead to 2020, we don't have Ab Mikva any sadly with us anymore to point out uh, the winners. He was a legend here in Illinois as a legislator, as a congressman. Ultimately, he was the chief judge in the U.S. District Court in Washington. Um, but who do you see who has impressed you? You, you know, the prob- 
problem with the question. I mean, it's a good question. It's what everyone asks. Uh, the problem is when we look back at history, you know, we so often have not gotten that right. I mean, I, I, I was impressed with Barack Obama the first time I saw him. I, I wouldn't have said at this time in 2006, I guess it would have been, that I thought Barack Obama was going to be the nominee. It wasn't until the following May when I had lunch in uh, Chicago with some wise person who was his media strategist at the time who convinced me that Barack Obama would be president because he knew his time and she didn't know uh, the time. So I don't know now. I have a suspicion that maybe someone from the outside lane, uh, whether it's a Landry or whether it's a Bullock or a Garcetti or a Hickenlooper, I, I, I think one of those might emerge. And if they emerge, they might be uh, they might be just what the times call for. Yeah. I actually didn't ask you who you thought would be the nominee. I, oh, just asked, I asked you who impressed you uh, among them. Well, I'll tell you, that freshman class, that freshman Democratic class impresses me more than any class yeah. I've ever seen, including... Yeah. I'm so darn old, including the Watergate class yeah. of 74. They're better than the Watergate class. They really are. And you look at some of those people, Abigail Spanberger, yeah. CIA operative, Mikey Sherrill, a Navy helicopter pilot, uh, Colin Allrad, uh, who is a, was a football player and a civil rights lawyer. I talked to Colin Allrad last week, and he said, look, I'm trying to re reach across the aisle. I know it's not going to be easy because, you know, there's a lot of right-wing Republicans, but I'm trying. I'm talking to this conservative uh, Texas congressman, where, and he said, I, and I have a lunch or a coffee schedule for next week. I said, with he said, we're one of my constituents. I said, who's that? And he said, George W. Bush. Uh, that's a smart politician. Yeah. No. And you know, look, the districts in which they won are uh, districts that require that kind of. But I also think the whole, uh, you know, we have a new generation of of military veterans. Uh, I think one of the part of the comedy that we've lost in our politics is that World War II generation Kind of, and the Vietnam, they kind of phased out of politics. World War II in particular, where people fought side by side of different backgrounds, different political persuasions. And so they could, you know, it's the Bob Dole, Dan Inouye thing. Right. They could debate and still have yep. uh, affection for each other and respect each other as Americans. And maybe we'll regain, uh, we'll regain some of that. I can't let you go without talking about your son Jeffrey and your experience mm -hmm. with him because it's an experience that we share. So we talked to Judy about it, but I want to ask you again to talk about uh, Jeffrey and his journey. Jeffrey was born with a mild defect, birth defect. He was doing fine. He was 16, and then there was a surgical accident, and he was left severely um, with severe disabilities. And uh, we What was that like for you? It was, at the time it was it was beyond it was beyond description awful it was traumatic it was shocking we thought he was about to go off to a camp uh you know a week later to ride bicycles in vermont and all that and it was he couldn't talk for three and a half months uh, and it was just awful and uh but uh, you know somebody said boy what you guys did you know we did well, you, yeah you do what it. else can you do <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I get that a lot because right. of my own daughters yeah. it's like no, I mean, like, what else can you do? Exactly, but, of course you're going to do it. You know? and, and, but then he really, he's become just such a source of inspiration for me, as I know Lauren is, is for you, because what he's been able to do is just remarkable. And now he's in a great place, 
And yeah, it's different. It's not what we dreamed of uh, uh, 22 years ago or whenever. But uh, but he has a good life, and he can be very funny. And you know, we sometimes think, oh, he's got some he's got some limitations. I took him to see the movie Thurgood about six months ago, and I said, you know, you you know what Thurgood? Mar- I know who Thurgood Marshall was. And I said, well, who does he remind you of? And I thought. I, I was thinking of Vernon Jordan, who he knows well, you know, black civil rights leaders. And he looked at me and he said, Seth Waxman. Seth Waxman is one of our best friends who was the Solicitor General of the United States, as Marshall had been 50 years earlier. Mm. I didn't make that connection. So he, he, he does that and he's fun. And mm. so it's um, it's been tough, David. There have been challenges. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, wish it on, on anyone else. But it's also been incredibly inspirational. Uh, you know that thing that you said you, you you can get to a very dark place very quickly yeah. thinking about what might have been right but you got to wrap your arms around the fact that your child is happy healthy that uh in ways that perhaps didn't seem possible uh i mean that's how we get through Absolutely. uh you know every day that's a good day is a good day yeah, and there are, I suspect you have this too, there are some bad days, there are yeah. some traumas, yeah. there are some times when he gets upset about things. Right. There are, and he knows what happened to him, and there are times, very rarely, but there are times that he will talk about that. Uh, and those are difficult. But boy, the good days now far outnumbered. Yeah, the difference between our kids is that my daughter started having seizures when she was seven months old, and so yeah. she didn't know another life. Yeah. yeah. So that, you know, I, I, I that's particularly hard for for Jeffrey, you are uh, you are retiring from your. David, stop that! Wash your mouth out with soap. My wife will leave me if we use the term retirement. Okay. I am leaving Bloomberg. Leave, full leaving time. Bloomberg, <laughs> where you you've been since two thousand and five. Yeah. Um, are you going to continue to write the column, or what are you going to do? No, I don't think I'm going to continue to write the column. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania, yes. which I love. That'll be a little part of what I want to do. I'm talking to some people. I just want to, you know, I used to have an aunt who would say to me, what are you going to do when you grow up? And now I'm going to find out. Uh, but I want to try some different things, uh, maybe some semi-journalism related, maybe some uh, other things. When you look back over the sweep of your 50 years, um, how has journalism changed uh, for better and for worse? Well, it's both. Uh, I think most reporters and editors that I meet, the younger ones today, are smarter than we were. Uh, they know a lot. Uh, and there's some great journalism being practiced. Uh, but there's also, um, you know, social media has done so much good. The Internet's done so much good. But it also has added and contributed to the polarizing uh, impact, uh, influence in America. Uh, and there's some awful shoddy journalism that comes out. Yeah, you know, and the speed and pace of, uh, of, of the Internet and social media has, I think, made it much more difficult to practice responsible journalism because the deadline pressures. We used to have a, these things called editions. Uh, right. Now, whatever you get, you, you're under pressure to post immediately and continually, right? That's an enormous amount of pressure. It, it, it's it's a great deal of pressure, and um, I also, um, you know, I used to watch, you know, television and the cable shows, and 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 it wasn't, you know, uh, shirts and and skins. It wasn't, you know, left and right. And and I, as you know, a student last year, uh, spent a couple of weeks uh, looking at 
at MSNBC and and Fox, and he, an hour piece through that. And and he said at the end, he said, I, you know, you almost wanted to have a nervous breakdown. It's two different universes, and I, I I don't know. They all have a role to play, but I don't like that as much. And I miss Tim Russert a great deal. Yes, who I was think, a great friend of yours, yeah. uh, the great host of Meet the Press, really one of the great human beings and one of the great journalists, the great uh, journalists. of our time. So, but, but I don't want to be one of those scolds who says, boy, it was so much better in the old days, because there's some things today that are a lot better. Uh, and I don't, and I, I think journalism obviously is going through a tremendous economic challenge, but they're also encouraging things. When you look at what Jeff Bezos has done with the Washington Post, I, Michael Bloomberg uh, uh, did, uh, you know, for Bloomberg News, and the you know the person that just bought the L.A. Times and hired Norman Perlstein to be his editor, they're building again now. I mean, you know, the Tribune Company, uh, whatever it was called, Tronk, uh, almost yeah. destroyed the place. Yes, uh, and so there's some encouraging things going on too. And um, I should ask you. Now that you mentioned it, that uh, Bloomberg is now talking about running for president of the United States. Now that you're leaving Bloomberg, I know you can be totally objective about this. What do you think about that enterprise? Well, I think it's a more, I'm, I'm not sure I'll do it. I think it's more realistic running to try to get the Democratic nomination than it was to run as an independent. I don't think you can win as an independent. He also had a tremendous fall. He uh, he contributed lots of money yes. and probably made a difference in a number He's of He's one of the great philanthropists. He is, of all times. Uh, yes. I think he would be a good president. Um, if he decides to run, I'm not sure what kind of a candidate he'd be. I, think I keep trying be. to imagine him standing by the butter cow at the yeah. Iowa State Fair or watching people walk by with fried Twinkies I think he doesn't a have a lot of culture in that. No, no, <laughs> but, a little but culture shock. He, he's a good person. He's done an incredible amount of good in his life, and I think he would be a good president. Uh, you know, also he's going to be seventy-eight or seventy-nine years old, and and uh, that probably be a factor. So I um, for Biden so, as well. You think? Yeah, I do. I think mm-hmm. for Biden and for Bernie and for and for Elizabeth Warren, they're all going to be uh, in their seventies. Uh, I I have written this, so I do believe if Biden runs, and I, again, I'm not sure he will. I think what what I think he has to do, and, and David, politicians so rarely listen to my advice, so I suspect he won't. He he ought to run with a running mate, uh, Kamala Harris. You pick mm-hmm. someone young; it's got to be a woman uh, who can succeed him, and maybe even take a one-term vow. I'm not sure that's good, but I know. No, I think, think he may do that. Yeah, I think that's the only sensible thing to do. You can't run at age 77. And, uh, and 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 if I can quickly tell you, I know exactly how old Joe Biden is because he's two weeks older than I am. And that's because I was traveling with Ted Kennedy in 1972 and we went to Delaware. And I said to Kennedy, isn't this kind of a wasted trip because this, this kid's only 29 years old and he's running in a terrible, in a big Republican year. And Kennedy looked at me and said, you watch this kid's special. Every time I'm around Joe Biden, he likes me to tell that story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it does remind us that he was touted as a potential future president from the time he was 29 years old. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he's been quite a, f- a fixture on the scene for a very long time. Yeah. So, Al Hunt, I could talk to you forever, man. It's so, so good I. to see you. Thank you for, uh, for being here. And good luck in your growing up when phase. When I grow up? Yes. Give my best to Susan. Okay? I will do so. And to Judy. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.